2: Monday to Friday, 7am late 8:30am.
3: Early double. your
0: Good morning. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. It is the 29th of April, and it has just gone 7:01 in the morning. Good morning, Priya, and a very, very special first good morning to Malika.
1: Good morning, Malika. Um, Good morning, Rosie. It is really good to be with you. Um, Malika, do you want to say hi to the listeners?
4: Hi, everyone. I'm really excited to be here and chatting with both of you. I've been behind the scenes for a couple of weeks, so finally get to introduce my voice to the world, which is pretty awesome.
1: Now you know what Malika sounds like, (laughs) and I'm sure you will not stop hearing from her because, yeah, we're going to be... um, well, today we've, we've got plenty on for you, but over the next few weeks, I'm sure you're going to start hearing some <laughs> interviews as well. Um, yeah, so we've got a pretty busy show, as usual. Um, so first up, you're going to hear um, an interview from 3CR's Wednesday Morning Breakfast. Um, and uh, Ella from Wednesday Breakfast spoke with Lizzie O'Shea in the lead up to May Day about the nature of work and what the term unskilled labor really means.
0: Yeah, and then I spoke with Bernardo Duarte, a member of the Timorese community and one of the organisers of Melbourne Timorese Relief Fund, um, which got together recently. And we discussed the situation in Timor-Leste following the catastrophic floods in early April, as well as the impact of COVID-19 over there.
4: Um, We're then going to be speaking to Jenny Davidson, the CEO of the Council of Single Mothers and their children, Victoria, Um, and they're going to speak to us about the current parliamentary joint committee on human rights inquiry into the Parents' Next program of welfare conditionality, as well as the broader concerns about the program.
1: And after that, we're going to be joined by one of our favorite guests, Poro Beebe, um, who is a West Papuan activist and community organizer. And Pora is going to come on the show to give us an update on West Papua and speak about an, unco- uh, sorry, an upcoming event before the genocide, which is coming up on Saturday, the 1st of May from 3 to 9 p.m. at Collingwood Yard. So you're going to hear a lot more about that. And we really encourage people to go if you can.
0: Awesome. And then finally, we'll speak to Bo Spiram, Akuma, Mariwari and uh, Gamilaroi Mand, who joins us to discuss his podcast, Frontier Wars, War Stories, pardon me. Um, And each episode is dedicated to truth telling about a side of Australia that has been left out of the history books. And Frontier War Stories is now at 21 episodes and is coming up to its first birthday. So that'll be really exciting to hear more about what Bo's been working on
1: yeah i'm so keen to hear about that because i think uh the stories that beau brings to light um, in conversations with historians um and other people in the community who are really holding these stories um is so so important this is not the sort of stuff that you learn about in school but so vital especially for those of us who are non-indigenous people living on stolen land actually understanding the history of resistance in this country um So I think we might just jump into the headlines. First of all, um, we want to highlight the fact that uh, appallingly, two more Aboriginal people have died in custody in the past week. So New South Wales authorities have uh, confirmed that a 37-year-old man was found dead in uh, his cell at Cessnock Correctional Centre on Tuesday morning, and the death of another man at Port Phillip Prison in Victoria is still under investigation at the moment, and this is just you know, it's absolutely unacceptable. Um, as as you will have known, as we've um, discussed on this show before, um, uh, Natsals has a petition uh, basically put together by families of people who have lost um, Aboriginal people in, uh, who've died in custody. And they've been calling for the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, to meet with them for a long time. And the Prime Minister has not um, has not listened to their calls. And this is you know this absolutely needs to happen. Choosing to ignore these families is just is just disgusting. Totally, and I think like you know it really need, it
0: does rely on listeners and others out there to get into their communities to talk to people about what's going on. This should not be an issue that is just. Um, silenced and left out of the mainstream media we need people to be speaking to their loved ones speaking to their colleagues speaking to their peers about what's going on and get people to start listening because um these calls have been going on for a really long time and it's absolutely disgraceful that the prime minister and so many others are just ignoring this um terrible terrible situation
1: yeah and i mean so much of this work, the, the, the majority of this work has been held by Aboriginal people, Aboriginal communities um, who've been pushing for it. And while that is really important that it is led by um, Indigenous families and especially the families of people who've died in custody, it's, it's all of our responsibility to really get behind this. Um, and just a reminder as well thinking about the, the massive amount of support work um, and, you know, unseen and unpaid labor that goes into supporting families who have lost loved ones, who've died in custody. We really recommend people to check out the Dajawa Foundation. That's D-H-A-D-J-O-W-A Foundation. And they're um, up on social media. They have a website um, as well. And you can donate towards the um, incredible relief and support work that they do for families who have to navigate this awful, awful process that no family should have to go through.
0: Absolutely. Other headlines um, that we have today: so from ABC News, hundreds of stolen generation survivors to sue the federal government for compensation. So this is a group of stolen generation survivors from the Northern Territory who are taking their fight for compensation to the courts. Um, yeah, Priya, could you tell me a bit more about this story?
1: Oh yes. Um, I mean, I think this is it's quite you know it's quite exciting to see these. Uh, kinds of cases come forward because obviously this compensation is so well deserved for the for the the trauma the awful legacy of um of being stolen and um this is being led by shine lawyers and shine have said that the survivors are seeking compensation basically for the hurt and trauma they've experienced and for their loss of culture and connection to country um and you know there are um yeah have, I think that, yeah. that was
0: a really interesting quote or like important quote just from one of the um one of the claimants uh whose name is um uh miss heather alley um and she was just saying you know we are aboriginal in this land it belongs to us and we feel that we are not to be treated as as we um we have not been treated as we should be of course that's absolutely true, and you know legal recognition of this like it's it's um long, long deserved. And
1: yeah. Yeah. And, um, and also, um, this quote from Shine Lawyers, um, basically refers to the fact that the majority of other states around the country have either already had redress schemes or compensation schemes for institutional abuse. A little bit of an editorial insert here is, you know, we know that these are not perfect schemes, uh, but the Northern Territory is, um, you know, an outlier from that perspective. So actually getting um, a systemic uh, recognition and compensation from the government is is what they're seeking um yeah and uh, of course no (laughs) no comment from uh the minister from indigenous australians ken wyatt on this at this time um now there's also been a victorian parliament inquiry into um into i think it's possession of cannabis is that correct rosie
0: uh yes, I think so although I'm just sorry I'm just having a look here. So um it's into the use of, the cannabis, use of cannabis in, in Victoria. Victoria, yeah.
1: Yeah, and so um so on the on the 30th of May 2019 the Legislative Council in Victoria agreed um to uh, consider and report um on Basically, preventing young people and children from accessing and using cannabis, protecting public health and public safety, implementing health education, preventing, quote-unquote, criminal activity relating to the, quote-unquote, illegal cannabis trade in Victoria and assessing health, mental health, and social impacts. Now, what we wanted to highlight with this is a statement that has been put out by the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service in their submission uh, to this inquiry. So Rosie?
0: Yeah, so their recommendation is that the use of cannabis and the possession of cannabis cannabis for personal use should be decriminalized. so the use of cannabis and the possession of cannabis for a personal use should trigger a health response and not a criminal justice response. I feel like this is a really, um, you know, a, a call that has been repeated in relation to public drunkenness um, and these kind of criminalization uh, strategies that just really pull people into the criminal um, punishment system rather than, you know, um, helping, helping people if they want it. And, um, yeah, it's just a, a kind of another colonial Construct basically.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and another kind of headline from this week as well is that the federal government um, will be extending telehealth services um, till the end of this year through the 2021 2022 budgets. So that means people accessing services through their GP, allied health services, mental health services, will be able to access this support um, via telehealth um, until the end of this year, but it's kind of unclear what will happen following that extension.
1: Yeah, and there's been a little bit of, obviously, questions kind of raised about changes then to uh, to what GPs are able to sort of put under uh, mm. under those services. So there's there have been... Um, in terms of people accessing telehealth services while the program itself has been extended. um, It's also a bit up in the air about the items that are going to be covered under Mm. that. So something to look out for and to ask your GP about as well.
0: Yeah, I think it's important to speak to your GP because I know there were rules around like you have to be in person at least once in the year and all those kinds of things. So making sure that you speak to your GP um, to make sure that you get that bulk bill service.
1: Yeah, and um, finally, uh, we just wanted to plug the RISE Refugee Student Walkout event. And every year, RISE runs a student walkout um, to protest against um, the white supremacist refugee policy of the Australian government. And so um, the... Yeah, so this is going to be held um, on the 5th of May at 1pm at the State Library of Melbourne. And you can find more information about this at um and also more information and updates on at riserefugee on Twitter as well. So we really encourage if you are a university student or a school student, you know, get informed about this. Please, um, you know, see if you can participate. It is really important to show solidarity. Um, I think... Something that we find in, in the news cycle is refugee justice issues really fall out of the news cycle because they're not considered to be topical, um, even though it's an emergency that is constantly going on. You know, Much like the fact that we are living on stolen land, it's a crisis that we're all living through every day rather than um, necessarily like a flashpoint.
0: Totally. And I think as well, like we were talking about, um, you know, following the lead of um, Aboriginal people whose family members have died in custody. Similarly, RISE are a really important organization to follow um, when they make, you know, call-outs for people to come to the streets or to take uh, take part in action. They're, they're a really important organization. We need to be um, following their lead and, yeah, um, acting in solidarity.
1: And donate to them as well because they are um, – Autonomous refugee uh, led, led by people with lived experience. And they don't uh, rely on, uh, let's say, the gratuitous use of people suffering to promote their cause. Um, all right. That's all we've got for the headlines.
2: So here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced Produced by by Jan
5: you're
1: listening to thursday morning breakfast on 3cr 855 am and now we're going to go to an interview in the lead up to May Day 2021 so as part of this ella from 3cr's wednesday breakfast program spoke with lizzie o'Shea on the nature of work and what the term unskilled labor really means
6: Continuing on from the theme of workers' rights, I want to take a look at the value society places on certain jobs or certain work and the people who do these jobs, Uh, in particular unskilled labour. And I say unskilled in air quotes because our next guest is here to tell us why it doesn't exist. Uh, We're joined this morning by Lizzie O'Shea. Lizzie is a human rights lawyer and writer. Her book Future History is about politics and history of technology, and she is the founder and chair of Digital Rights Watch. Good morning and welcome to Wednesday Breakfast, Lizzie.
3: Thank you so much for having me on.
6: Now, a huge portion of the population work in what we call unskilled jobs. Um, Society relies on this work to function. Um, I think we had plenty of reminders about this throughout the pandemic. Certainly anyone waiting on a package from Australia Post. Um, And we often hear about labour shortages. Uh, Recently in Australia, we've had a massive shortage of people to pick fruit. Uh, Yet we still place such little value on this work. Um, So how did this myth of unskilled labour come about?
3: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So I have an article that I wrote about this, which I'd written a little bit before, but fortuitously kind of came out at the height of the world shutting down for the pandemic. Uh, And so really, for I suppose, for the first time in history, it was more obvious than ever to people how important it was. Uh, that people did jobs that would be classically or traditionally uh, classified as unskilled. Um, and the co- kind of claim behind the piece was we need to rethink this category Is what kind of work is it doing? What is it telling us about these jobs? What is it forcing to us to accept about these jobs? And um, I think there's a couple of historical reference points. I think the first is that uh, traditionally trade unionism, as we understand it, as opposed to kind of industrial unionism, trade unionism was focusing, focused historically on organising guilds, people who had particular skills um, and particular skill sets that w- within a particular profession, and that's how it was organised. There's been other trends and historical um, uh, threads of, of, of union activism, but that's certainly one aspect of it which held strong, which kind of understandably pivots skilled labourers against other kinds of labour within that guild or that set profession. And then the other part of it that I think is important to remember is the use of technology. Um, As we go into a world with more automation of certain kinds of work, it does mean that certain kinds of jobs that go with that technology uh, starts to be stripped of some of the aspects of it that might have otherwise meant people thought of it as skilled. And so those are the kinds of historical trends that have led to this moment where we start thinking about unskilled jobs in a world in which many, many people do them, huge portions
7: of society. And
3: I think it's caused to rethink both whether they are in fact unskilled in their philosophical sense, but also politically what that that term is really doing and what what it serves, who it serves, I suppose.
6: Yeah, and you spoke about um, the relationship to the advance of technology. And I think there's this idea, or there's long been this idea that, uh, as technology advances, humans will spend less time doing mundane or repetitive tasks, but it's kind of gone the other way, right?
3: That would be so good, Ella, if that was <laughs> what was happening. It's one of the things that some kind of technologists or um, people who are interested in the history of technology have started to grapple with. Why is it that um, technology has improved, supposedly improved all these parts of our lives, but wages remain stagnant? Uh, and it's not reducing our working hours in the way that was expected. Um, I mean, p- part of that is the kind of demands that Labor puts up. Maybe we need to start making more demands around the use of our time and, and when when work stops, for example. Um, but part of it is that even if you, if you can stop work when you stop work um, in your, in your partic- particular job, you have, a, you have a different transformed relationship with technology Um, And I think it's a really interesting idea, because we often think about labour being automated or jobs being automated, but I also think the other thing that's being automated um, is management, and that's not often how we conceive of it, but it becomes a workplace in which much more of your management is done by machines with less um, recourse to kind of have a discussion and uh, you know have a normal human relationship that might involve some flexibility or some more dignity in how you do your work. Um, and you know if anything, there's a lot of unskilled management out there rather than unskilled labor in my view. So it's something that is ripe for for um, automation. And it does totally transform the way you work. And it's got this real risk of becoming completely dehumanising as people end up going to work, being assigned tasks and being controlled and managed, disciplined by machines. And I think that is something that we need to kind of start to contend with. And it's quite important because it's essential, I think, to human dignity.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And um, in this article, uh, you wrote about how in addition to the work itself, there's also all these skills required around the jobs. Um, People might have less notice of when to work or they might have to deal with more monitoring from managers. Um, Can you talk a little about the different skills that are required?
3: Yeah, completely. So there's, um, you know, the way that unskilled laborers or jobs have traditionally been... um, categorised for kind of statistical purposes is whether you require a high school degree or um any degree at all high school qualification or a degree um or you don't even need to graduate from high school in order to have a job so that's traditionally how it's been um classified but i don't think that really gets at the qualitative difference you know to be a, a laborer or to have a job in the hospitality industry um you know, in in, supermarket, um, in supermarkets, in, in, like, the fast food industry, it is a very highly skilled job. You have to do a lot of things. You have to be able to manage your time extremely efficiently. You have to be physically fit. Uh, you have to be able to deal with customers in, in difficult circumstances um, because there may not be any support for, you, for outside of your particular job to be able to deal with that. I mean, that's one aspect of it that makes it very, a very challenging job and, and requires a whole set of very Specific skills. The other part of it is, of course, that increasingly more and more people are um, scheduled in just in time for for their shifts, their casual labourers, where they may have very little notice of when their next shift is. And so the work that's being done behind the scenes, outside of the job entirely, to arrange your life is kind of incredible. And people manage these things um, with such grace, I think, in the circumstances, um, and they still show up to work, even though they've got to work out how to care for their kids, how to care for their elderly parents, how to, how to, you know, pick up a package, how to make sure that um, the plumber gets in, um, in a context in which they may have very little notice of when they start work. This is increasingly portrayed by, you know, the powers that be of flexibility, of the, the wonders of being able to choose your own hours. But, in fact, it's just offloading a burden onto um, people who often are paid the lowest to manage extremely difficult personal circumstances. And that's, I think, an indictment on us all and needs to be addressed.
6: And um, uh, if um, unskilled labour is a construct, how can we deconstruct it or reconstruct it? Because it's not just about money, right? Because we know Amazon in America, they have one of the highest minimum wages. They pay $15 an hour, Um, but it still doesn't cut it.
3: Yeah, yeah. You, you I think you're very astute to point that out. Um, Amazon does talk about a lot about the fact that it's um it's it's raised their minimum wage, um, beyond what's necessary to an aspirational wage for the country of fifteen dollars. Um, yeah, I think we do need to start organizing. Uh it's I don't think it's um there's a secret source there. Um you know, people will have watched recently Amazon um the, the debate about unionism in Amazon and their move to, to push for a union in Alabama. And, um, you know, the union push was unsuccessful. The vote went down. But I think it is important to think about the fact that the company marshaled all its resources of surveillance, um, of, um, you know, management, automated management, to try and stop this particular initiative. Uh, and that is one thing I think we do need to start pushing back on, surveillance in the workplace, because it is used for efficiency purposes to make sure um, people work a certain amount and make make their lives really unpleasant, in my view. So you know, constantly being watched on your job is not a nice experience. And but the other component is it, it allows a company like Amazon to be able to figure out where uh, weaknesses are within a union campaign, resist that unionisation, and marshal all its kind of all, um, uh, automated learning and you know artificial intelligence towards stopping unionisation within their factories or their Sorry, they fulfilment centres. And that, I think, is a big problem. Surveillance in the workplace is not just about the individual. It's also about the collective and the, the capacity for the collective to be managed by management, uh, including stopping things like immunisation. Like, there's a scandal at Amazon where apparently they were trying to stop people congregating in more than groups of two or three, which is like what you'd normally call a conversation in a workplace. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, like, they can track them because everybody's holding one of those guns in a fulfilment centre, scanning guns, to, that gives them jobs to do. And so this surveillance capability, I think, is something absolutely unions need to get on top of and workers need to start thinking about. And the United Workers Union um, has a great submission they provided. There was an inquiry in New South Wales actually into surveillance in the workplace and they've got a great um, submission that they made, which you can have a read if you're interested it goes into all sorts of detail about how you might be able to use data and technology in ways that are good for workers rather than um, just about making their lives hell um, for the profits of, of management. And so There's lots of things that we could do to make it better and they're a great union, I think, that are on the front foot and I'm hoping that other unions will follow the lead.
6: Yeah, excellent. All right, thanks so much for joining us this morning, Lizzie.
3: Thank you so much for having me on.
6: That was a really interesting discussion, Ella yeah it's funny um in an article lizzie writes about a unnamed call center and i believe it was the one i used to work in and i'm very aware of how um Mm -hmm. monitoring can affect your psyche and yeah um really changes the workplace and the way you do your work
0: sense of surveillance
1: yes yeah That was an interview with activist and human rights lawyer Lizzie O'Shea, who's the founder and a board member of Digital Rights Watch, speaking there with Ella from 3CR Wednesday Breakfast about how the term unskilled labor doesn't really exist. Uh, Now, it is 7.25 a.m. and you're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast.
8: Every year on May Day, 3CR joins communities from around the globe to celebrate the achievements of the labour movement and to show solidarity with the struggle for workplace rights and, of course, fair working conditions for everyone. Why is it important to celebrate May Day? Well, because we celebrate and enjoy understanding the history, the present-day fight and the future battles, because we haven't won yet. So tune in from 7am on Saturday the 1st of May. It's more important than ever to celebrate May Day. We'll be fighting for a long time, so come and join us. And happy May Day from 3CR. Hold that line, hold that
9: line, hold that line.
1: And now we're going to go into a track. So this is TMO by Squiginini.
4: i tell you, one more thing, just take me away, take a around and take it for a spin Take, No, you know,
2: I'll
5: take you over there You want it real bad, yeah, you can tell it, babe You want it, you need it, yeah, you can have it, back.
1: That was Timo by Squiginini. And now we're going to go into an interview that Carly did with Bernardo Duarte about uh, the situation in Timor-Leste.
0: You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. Today, I'm joined by Bernardo Duarte, member of the Timorese community and organizer of a recent fundraiser, the Melbourne Timorese Relief Fund. He's joining me to discuss the situation in Timor Leste following catastrophic floods in early April, as well as the impact of COVID-19. Welcome, Bernardo.
10: Good evening. Thank you.
0: Um, Bernardo, before I begin, uh, I just wanted to get you to introduce yourself to listeners.
10: Good morning, everyone. How are you all? My name is Bernardo Duarte, and yes, I am a member of the East Timorese community here in Melbourne. And in terms of the community organisations, I've been involved with the Timorese community since way back in the '90s when I first started getting involved with the um, what was happening in Timor with the occupation, and and then I sort of got involved in these sort of creative art side of things and art performances side of things, and and with what's been happening now in Timor, with the floods, um, yeah, um, yeah, we can talk on a bit more. But yeah, yeah. So.
0: thank you. Yeah, so um, at the beginning of April, there were these catastrophic floods um, caused by a tropical cyclone, cyclone, and they caused massive destruction in East Timor, um, causing landslides, causing loss of life, causing the displacement of thousands of people. So I was just wondering if you could let listeners know what happened.
10: Yes, um, yeah, just after, just around Easter time, um, yeah, as you just mentioned the dates, uh, yeah, a very bad storm occurred in Timor. And I think the capital, Dili, I think sort of copped most of this rain. And, um, considering the landscape, Dili is really down below sea level and it's all surrounded by mountains. So when the rain comes down, it just pours. And at that stage, it's pretty much, the whole of Chile went underwater and a lot of people um gone by government statistics about forty one people has lost their lives and uh, and yeah, and uh, people have lost their houses, their belongings, and a lot of people still haven't returned home. There's no home to return to and that's what's going on at the moment in Timor.
0: I know that. Um, Obviously, Timor has a lot of like these kind of tropical storms and floods are quite common, but these floods sound like they've been really uh, absolutely terrible and worse than you know your average year, much worse. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the situation there now. You were saying people don't have homes to return to. What is going on in Dili?
10: Um, Well, yeah, Yeah. um, I think a lot of them are still in. evacuation centres where even churches are still holding them. Yeah, there's a large number still don't have homes to return to. Uh, If you can just type up to find Timor and Dilly a lot of the houses you can see it's all just been torn. Not just houses but even roads has been washed away. Bridges washed and all torn away. And um, there are a few that have returned home but Majority still in, yeah. It's almost like refugee camps, I suppose. Uh, um, Yeah, they're all just waiting. And what doesn't really help is COVID. I suppose that in in Timor, I think Timor was one of those places in the world where they had it under sort of kind of control, or maybe because of the weather side of things. But now, for some reason, it just seems to be climbing the um, sort of corona side of things in Timor as well. So, yeah, the two are not really going hand in hand. But, yeah, it's affecting the Timorese people at the moment.
0: Absolutely. I saw that um, the floods, when the floods did hit, that Timor was actually in a lockdown due to those climbing COVID numbers. But, yeah, previously it had been celebrated as one of those countries that had done really well in kind of containing the virus. But then in 2021, um those numbers getting a bit out of control and then the floods just kind of on top of that. Absolutely, um, yeah, really devastating. Um, There there have been calls as well from the Timorese government um, and the diaspora community here um, for the uh, Australian government to provide financial and other assistance. Do you know what the response to that, those calls have been?
10: I know that Timor have been asking for support. And I am just focused, at the moment, Like honestly, we're we just focusing on what, as a Timorese community here in Melbourne, what we could do.
0: Last weekend you you did organise this fundraiser and you came together um, to to create this new group, the Melbourne Timorese Relief Fund. Could you tell us a bit about the beginnings of that organisation and what you're hoping to do?
10: Yes, the, the, the actual group, which is now called the MTRF, which is, Stands for Melton Timor Relief Fund. Um, The aim of this organisation is sort of to have a fund that will be sitting in some kind of some account um, that not just for this incident, this crisis that's just happened in Timor, the floods, but maybe in future as well. But this particular group. Yeah, it's a collaboration of all different organisations. You know, um, one of the oldest organisations that has been established here in Melbourne is um, the Timorese Association Victoria, which was established back in '75 when the Timorese first arrived here in Australia, and it was just the organisation that helped the Timorese to settle, resettle in in, 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 yeah, in Melbourne, and that's still going. And then the soccer club, which is down here in Devon Hill, School called Devon United, and that also has been running since 1988. There's um, two new groups. I mean, they've been around for another couple of years also, but these two particular groups, they're sort of more of the younger generation that have are now establishing themselves and also are also trying to get in touch with their roots back into like um, who they are and what they are and uh the first group is halibur today sort of more on the sporty side of things as well they focus on soccer and they've been very successful in pulling pull, bringing the timorese soccer players together and then there is the Timurong who are more of a dancing and timorese cultural side of things and they've also just sort of joined come together but yeah and then there's a, and yeah they currently that i mean with the timorang they have Taking part in uh, the War Festival then in Adelaide, they've um, went to help the Mobere Timor, the the group that came from Timor, who made up the um, the Timorese veterans, and um, yeah, the Timorans went to support them, and yeah, so and then there's the Melbourne East Timorese Activity Centre, and that, as we spoke before, they normally have dinner once a month and that project has been running since to early 2000 it, it all came about it's just to help with the asylum seekers back in those days or just to help ease their minds instead of them stuck in their little houses in those four walls just bring them out and yes yeah, so it's, it's sort of a yeah mental game sort of thing to ease them into yeah not to worry about what their situation back in those days
0: it just sounds like yeah from what what you've been saying that um you know the Timorese community here it is very like connected and very strong and um also very still very much connected to Timor and to you know many people have family and loved ones back home Yes
10: we are we are very connected um um and the individuals that took part in it. I mean it wasn't just the organizations but there were also the Timorese business individuals that help support in terms of all the different um, equipment that was required for that event. Um, Yeah, everybody sort of pulled in together and, yeah, it was a really big team that came together. It wasn't just a different organisation, one organisation, but it was pretty much the whole community, not just down here in south-east but also up from the north, and that's where, yeah, a lot of people sort of came down on the night as well, but a lot of people. Yeah, helped out, yeah, yeah, financially as well. I think that's what everybody did.
8: Yeah.
0: Well, speaking of that, if listeners did want to support um, uh, people in Timor through your organisation, how could they find out more about supporting the Melbourne Timorese Relief Fund?
10: Um, there is a um, GoFindMe group. It's um, Melbourne Timorese Relief Fund.
0: Okay, so if people maybe go to GoFundMe and search for Melbourne Timorese Relief Fund, they'll be able to make a donation there.
10: That's right.
0: Yeah. And where will those, like, um, what what are you hoping to achieve with those donations and that funding?
10: Okay, um, with the donations, um, at the moment with this flood, what we intend to do is um, we've got people on the ground that we are, constantly in contact with and also we are trying to find out exactly what it is that it needed. And and then from there we yeah, we sort of we still gotta meet on a bit later on actually um, in regards how, how to what's the most important things that people on the ground will need. So we are also talking to not just individuals in, in Temo, but also different organizations to see what's the best way to do it. Our aim is to, with the funds, we'll probably channel to the people, the organisation in Timor, and then we sort of tell them what is required, so it'll be get you know purchased over there for those people in Timor.
0: Yeah, so important as well to have like community running those fundraisers and thinking like you're in contact with people on the ground rather than just giving to big agencies. I think it's really good to see people giving to. Um, Yeah, locally organised people from the community who actually know what's needed and are listening to folks over there.
10: Exactly. Even the community out here as well, they they, they like to see it go straight down to to the ground, you know, and 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 that's the reason why the health community sort of came out on Saturday night is because they really felt and they really believed that, that we could help. in in that sense, but they wanted to go somewhere that will reach the community on the ground in Timor.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Bernardo, is there anything else um, before we wrap up that you wanted to share with listeners about the situation um, in Timor or other events that you might be organising?
10: Yes, in Timor at the moment, um, it it is a very tough situation in Timor. Um, A lot of them are still in, well, the whole team was still on lockdown for COVID, and as we sit here, I can see the images of Timor. Um, it's a lot of the roads is just there's no roads left, you know. It's just it's like dirt, and 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 that's something that we still gotta. Yeah, I don't know how much we can help from here. Like we're so far away from Timor, and, and being in Melbourne as well. <laughs> Just makes it twice as hard. Um, if we were up and down, it'd be a lot easier. Just, I don't know. Yeah, it'd be a lot easier, but um, but yeah, team. at the moment, we love to have our friends here in Australia to help support in whatever ways they can. Um, from our point of view, we did not really want to people donate material because it's a long way to get to timo and to put in a container it's going to take you months and months people people at the moment need something that's really urgent and something really quick and that's the reason why we've gone to on the financial side of things yes so we can just channel it to timo and then yeah and then like they can access it a lot easier in timo than to go to indonesia or something just buy something from over there and and then makes it easy for them to access this equipment instead of us trying to get a container and send it up that way
0: yeah thank you so much for speaking with me and um i can really hear like in the way that you're speaking about it like that this is these events and this um doing what you can as a diaspora is also so important for the strength of the community here because there's pain so much pain in seeing your country suffer so thank you really for sharing with me
10: but thank you thank you all the listeners and Yeah, for giving us the opportunity to come and share our our information, I suppose.
0: And that was a conversation that I had with Bernardo Duarte, a member of the Timorese community and one of the organisers of the Melbourne Timorese Relief Fund. And if you did want to donate to that GoFundMe, just go to GoFundMe and search for Melbourne Timorese Relief Fund. Um, they've they've got a, a, an aim for twenty five thousand dollars, and I think they're about halfway to that target. So please do consider going to um, GoFundMe and searching Melbourne Timorese Relief Fund and giving what you can, because the situation in Timor is
5: May Day is your day, it's Workers' Day. This year we celebrate May Day with three events. The eight-hour memorial event opposite Trades Hall at 5pm on Thursday the 29th of April. Then there's the International Solidarity event straight after that at 6 o'clock and then the march through the city, which is the big event. So please join us on Sunday, May 2nd, Lygon Street, between Queensbury and Victoria Street at 11 in the morning. There'll be various activities and speakers and and singing and music. Assemble at 1 o'clock and we march off at 2 o'clock around town. Come back for the speakers platform. It'll be a solidarity platform for Melbourne workers to give their solidarity to workers in other parts of the world and the country. And we look forward to seeing you there to celebrate May Day with us.
1: And it is just coming up to 7.45 in the morning on 3CR Thursday breakfast. And now we are joined by Jenny Davidson, who is the CEO of the Council of Single Mothers and Their Children, Victoria, who's going to speak with us about the current Parliamentary Joint Committee on Human Rights Inquiry into the Parents' Next program on welfare, of welfare conditionality, as well as some broader concerns around the program. So, Jenny, thank you so much for speaking with us today.
7: I'm delighted to be here, Priya.
1: Um so I guess before we jump in uh, could you tell listeners a little bit about uh, the council uh, of single mothers and their children Victoria
7: Sure so we were formed over 50 years ago by unwed mothers who were fighting to keep their babies in a system that forced most children who, who most women who became pregnant out of wedlock to either get married or really give their babies up for adoption Um, And so things have changed a lot in 50 years, but the thing that's remained the same is that um, single mother families are the poorest family structure in Australia, and there continues to be um, social and financial um, discrimination, and we provide practical support to single mother families in Victoria, and we advocate for change at a state and federal level
1: yeah absolutely, and so important, especially in the context of what we're going to talk about today, which is uh, the parents' next program. So for listeners who aren't really familiar with how that program works, um would you mind providing a little background on it just um just uh, before that contextualizing the fact that it is you know one of those mutual obligation programs. So if people are familiar with uh, with things like work for the doll, this is a, a similar principle.
7: That's right, so it's a work readiness program. it's mandatory and it targets families from when the youngest child is six months old, that's just about to increase to nine months. So very, very young child. Um, These are often families um, with other children as well. They're juggling a lot. Um, And the families get pushed into the program when they're identified as at risk of welfare dependence. So, for example, they're early school leavers um, or they've been on benefits for a number of years um, and they they have to go through certain obligations, show up, to meetings and, and and attend agreed activities in order to get benefits that are parenting payment single and couple. It's large, it's many, many single mothers um, and many Indigenous communities have been targeted. But the, there are many people out in the community who are getting the same benefits without having to tick any extra boxes. Um, and it was expanded nationally in July 2018. We really fought to try to get the program improved and we've been fighting ever since to try to get it stopped Improved, less punitive.
1: Yeah, definitely. And um, I recall, I think um, Shepparton in Victoria was one of the early trial sites. Is that correct?
7: Yes, Shepparton is a city that gets a lot of these programs pushed onto it, and this is
1: one of those. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, you mentioned uh, that it was rolled out nationally. There was initially an inquiry uh, in 2019. um, into Parents Next. And I know there were a lot of issues raised and, um, you know, some significant committee findings there, but we're on to a second inquiry. So could you just briefly recap some of the issues that were raised in that very first inquiry into Parents Next and the broader rollout?
7: Oh, the broader rollout was rife with issues i mean there was there were um they were crossing privacy lines they you know parents were being told they needed to uh, um the, part of their plan for work readiness was to take their children to swimming lessons then the um people working for um job active uh, sorry for parents next providers who are private companies that have a contract with the government same as the job active um, system and often the same providers, um, they could call up and see, have you taken your child to swimming lessons? Have you taken your child to the, to the story time at the library? So they were breaching people's privacy about being on benefits. They were, you know, making medical appointments for people. People were getting forced into the program and not being able to get out. So even women that were on maternity leave would get pushed into it. And they, There was no way to exit people when they got pushed in by, by error. But the committee also found that the program should not continue in its current form, not just because of the issues, but because it it wasn't helping families get work ready. It was giving parenting advice, which was outside the remit, and skills of the workers. Um, And the government then went into caretaker mode just weeks afterwards um, for the federal election. And so very few changes were made.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, while there had been a, a bit of a suspension of some of the mutual obligations activities over, um, you know, the beginning of the pandemic hitting Australia, um, obviously these are these are back in full force now, and there is a new inquiry by the uh, by the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Human Rights, and it's there's a specific sort of focus on human rights in this inquiry. So, um, what prompted this inquiry, and what are some of the new concerns um, that are in this, which uh, which has a, a submission date by by the fourth of May,
7: so the Standing committee of Human rights has the right to call an inquiry, and they were concerned about breaching our international obligations around the rights of the children, uh, rights to social security, particularly um, Around concerns that fam, um, how families are surviving if payments are cut off or reduced. So the way that um, the program works is that if you miss an appointment, um, you you can have your payment suspended. They've now they've now again changed that system to ease a little bit where you get two days. Uh, notice before suspension happens, and your payment is suspended until you re engage with the program. Now, that can mean that if you re engage before your, your fortnightly benefit is due, that you don't actually lose any money. It can just be extremely stressful, but it can also mean that your payment doesn't happen. You're, you're um, you know, and all of your payments that you've got set up from your banking out, like your rent don't happen, it can threaten your housing, um, and people can actually have their payments cut off. For non-participation, and then these families, for whom that's their only benefit, they're in the program because they have no other form of income. Then they're left with small children and no means to feed or house them.
1: Yeah, it's it just seems so um, counterintuitive. You know, a lot of these, a lot of these uh, inquiries into. These punitive social security programs that uh, happen on the basis of, of human rights and the, the sort of explanatory memoranda that are published alongside bills to expand these programs often refer to the idea that it is reasonable and proportionate to, to restrict people's access to social security in this way. But clearly we can see that there is an infringement on you know, the, the rights of um, families and, and children in particular to, to actually survive.
7: Well, that's right, and they, you just push families into survival crime or um, whatever, you know, payday loaners, um, basically into much worse situations. Um, and, of course, there's also a racist aspect because it targeted... One part of the program targeted Indigenous communities and there their continues to be high levels of Indigenous participation, which, again, this is forcing people to have to go through a whole bunch of... Um, Obligations to get benefits that are basically just your normal social security net payments for people who are raising small children and need financial assistance to do that.
1: Yeah. And I mean, something that that is sort of a concern ar- across the board with these with these programs that uh, that sanction people for um quote-unquote, failing to meet um, particular obligations um, set by, you know, Services Australia, Department of Social Services, um, you know, impacting on Indigenous communities disproportionately. Um, So is it correct that there's a proposed further expansion of Parents Next as well?
7: Uh, Yeah, they're talking about expanding it to all regions with job active, so a further national expansion, um, so really more, you know, more of a broad rollout and um, there are some other changes to the way that, uh, to who's being drawn in, but basically it's, it's um, forcing more and more people to have to, um, you know, to have to jump through hoops in order to get benefits. Now, and it, it's implying that you don't have a right to raise your own children and, and with, even if you need financial aid to do it. That if you if you go and get a job and you put your child in childcare, which is part of the formal economy and shows up in our GDP, then that's legitimate. But if you want to raise your own children and stay home and you need that, it's as if they're saying that's only the right of people who have you know some sort of financial ability to do that. They're able to access um, paid parental leave or they have another person in the house for bringing in income.
1: Yeah, it's this constant sort of creation of a, of a false divide between the "quote unquote" deserving and undeserving poor, right?
7: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, so, I was also wondering if you could speak more broadly to some of the impacts of uh, social security payment cuts, um, parents' next participation during COVID, and uh, parenting payment eligi- sorry, eligibility criteria on single mothers and their children. Um, you know, o- over over the past few months.
7: Yeah. Well, during. Um, We actually saw these families had a reprieve during COVID because um, the benefits were increased by the coronavirus supplement and mutual obligations were halted. And so they had this stress relief they were actually able to focus on their children. And we all know it was a very complicated time for families. Children were home, Um, they often would have had older children, they were homeschooling, childcare centres were shut. And for most families, that was incredibly stressful. But this part of the community, we've had surveys show that for them, stress was relieved because the financial crush of trying to survive on the level that, you know, that that even the parenting payments, especially JobSeeker, those levels are really low. and also this you know, the mutual obligations that really stresses parents. And so that actually detracts from their ability to raise children. Um, and so it, it was a better it was a it was a better situation. It goes to show the importance of not having mandatory participation in these programs. I mean families want help uh, to find jobs and to get ready for work readiness, they can opt in and if there's a good program the word will get out and people will choose to do that.
1: Yeah. Um and i was also wondering if we could kind of pivot to some of these discussions you know we've been having at at the at the governmental level as well around issues around gender equality and uh you know sort of uh lip service that's being paid to that um by government but the the way that this impacts um you know these these sort of systemic issues uh, impact upon um, single mothers and their children, and um, who were you know just trying to get by and raise their children and survive. And thinking about the importance of recognizing care work as work um, in, in in all of these discussions.
7: And this is what's so infuriating. I mean, look, families may well, as I say, want some support to get work ready when they when they feel their children are old enough. But the work that they're doing caring for children is essential. We can't just leave our children. You know, out for the possums to raise. Somebody needs to cho- to to raise them, whether it's unpaid in a home or paid in the childcare sector. It's essential work. And you know, if we can get things right for single mothers, we can also get things right for all the other carers in our community. People caring for disability, people caring for older parents, which of course is a growing um, growing cohort, and then care for country. So this this is a group that. It's only it's sort of an extreme example of the pressures of caring the way that it impacts on your any capacity um, and it defines your life, there's a lot of social isolation. When you're doing this unpaid care, you can't simply go out um, and do you know as you wish, and so that was in fact an experience that was much more broadly felt by the community that for single mothers is their norm. Um, and our society simply isn't isn't honouring mothering. In, in many ways, you know, there isn't enough respect for the role of parents. I mean, whether it's it's a mother or a father doing it, and we'd love to see more men doing the unpaid care work. That's one of the ways we're going to progress gender equality in this country. But but regardless, the role of parenting is is bringing up our next generation of citizens. And if we get this wrong, you know, then those children are the ones um, that really pay the price, and their free their future's on the line.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, the the work that you're doing to sort of push back against this is it's really important pushing back against uh, crackdowns on parenting and on, um, you know, the right for people to be able to raise their children in a way that is dignified and, you know, financially secure. Um, so... Finally, where can people find out a bit more about uh, the Council for Single Mothers and their children, Victoria, as well as how to make a submission to that inquiry? Where submissions, again, to the Parents Next Inquiry, are due by the fourth of May.
7: We can email a link. Can you put a link up on your website? Absolutely. For and our website is we're CSMC, so Charlie Sierra Mike Charlie dot um, org dot au. Um, but if you Google Council of Single Mothers, we will come up. And there is so much information on our website for single mothers around government benefits, around housing. You know, it's a really good starting place if you're looking for information. We support single mothers across a broad spectrum of issues from co parenting um, through to dealing with family court through feeling isolated. It's not just low income single mothers. Um, and we, all of our staff, are or have been single mothers. And so there's a lot of mutual understanding that um, that we offer as well.
1: Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jenny. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk through this with us today.
7: That's great, Priya. We want people to be talking about Parents Next and to be aware that this is a functional program and it certainly shouldn't be being expanded.
1: Definitely. Thank you. Thanks. And that was a conversation with Jenny Davidson, who is the CEO of the Council of Single Mothers and Their Children, Victoria, who spoke with us about the current Parliamentary Joint Committee on Human Rights Inquiry into the Parents' Next Program of Welfare Conditionality, as well as some broader concerns about the program. And as Jenny mentioned, um, you can find more information uh, by looking up the Council of Single Mothers and Their Children. And there's a bit of information on uh, if you want to make a submission to that parliamentary inquiry. If you are a single mother, who's being affected by the Parents Next program um, on their website and uh, we'll pop some links in the show notes as well and just uh, a reminder for that if you want to check out uh, our previous programs or listen to this interview again later you'll be able to find it later today on www.3cr.org.au slash Thursday breakfast
2: So every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Don't Produced,
5: Produced by Yan
9: Before the genocide, a celebration of West Papuan culture... History and Struggle. Launch party Saturday, 1st of May, 3 to 9 p.m. And exhibitions of archival photos from West Papua, pre-Indonesian occupation, cultural artifacts, and contemporary art by West Papuan artists. Lobe Wangai, Jeffrey Jikua, and other members of West Papuan community here in Melbourne. Traditional West Papuan food from Joyce Kitchen and music from the Sego and Jill Kogoya. Join us for the opening night for food, music and dance at Basement Gallery, Collingwood Yards, 35 Johnston Street, Collingwood. Launch party, Saturday, 1st of May, 3 to 9pm. Or a few exhibitions Sunday, 1pm to 6pm at Collingwood Yards. Before the genocide, find us on Facebook.
2: A 3CR supporter.
5: Free West Papua free. Free West Papua free.
8: Yeah. Free West Papua free. Oh. Free West Papua free.
10: Hi. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West
5: Papua.
8: Papua.
10: Tuesday, six thirty until seven thirty p.m.
8: News and music from West Papua. <laughs>
0: You're on 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, and it's just gone 8.04 in the morning. This morning, we're joined by Poro Bibby, a West Papuan activist and community organiser who's joining us to discuss um, or give us an update on West Papua, and also speak to us about an upcoming event before the genocide. Welcome, Poro Bibby. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Before we get on to talking about that amazing event that's coming up, yeah, we did want to get you to give us um, an update on what's going on in West Papua. Uh, Of course, the genocide and, you know, invasion and occupation has been going on for a very long time. But recently, President Wododo of Indonesia has ordered this crackdown. Could you tell us a bit about what's going on right now?
9: Yes, yes. So, um... For, uh, I'm talking about know, myself, firstly, and what I've seen so far with the whole strategy that um, Indonesia's been planning is... Uh, um, it, it's uh, They're trying to perfecting the attack to truly diminish um, West Papuan people, especially the people from... Um, the highland region. So at the moment there are four different village um people that come from um a place called Tegelobak and Misimaga and Ephesusu and Upaga that fled from the village to another two um close village because there are um a strike happening by the the military. And this is happening due to the retaliations of the murder of the um, the intelligence, Indonesian intelligence, chief intelligence in West Papua uh, by the West Papua Liberation Army. And uh, during the same period, there was uh, a big conversation and also a meeting by the Indonesia anti terrorism agency to categorize our liberation army as um as a terrorist. So um at the moment there are more than uh I would say more than twenty thousand they keep sending more troops to West Papua to to do all of this to to murder any um and free responsible movement supporter to murder and um, uh liberation army uh, Yeah, with liberation army and also to push the agenda of um uh Indonesian master plan of Accelerations and uh, expansions mm. of economic development which um all in which the area that have the most uh military attacks are located in where the mining industries will be planned to build, and also oil and gas uh, industry and palm oil industry will be uh, established so yeah there there's so much so much evil forces that come to West Papua at the moment because um yeah uh, there there are so many so many military presence in west Papua um the ratio is like uh fifteen over a thousand west Papua populations and more and more and more uh, military has been deployed from uh, nearby provinces of Indonesia like Sulawesi and Kalimantan mm-hmm. and Jaffa and um with any reason. So at the moment there, there is um uh um Olaraga is like um Indonesian interprovinces uh national sport that didn't held in West Papua and due to that they've sent five hundred military and they say um it's for a safety um reason and this is not um it, like this is this is not this is not um it it's not what do you call it uh something that you need to bring a military or this yeah. like a war. so yeah it's just I don't, I don't understand. And it's, it's the the worst scenario is um, with the plan of the acceleration of economic development. They're gonna build a road across West Papua and throughout the the road from north to south. They're gonna build military bases
5: mm-hmm.
9: that would be hard for West Papua people to seek asylum to Papua New Guinea. And yeah, West Papua will be turned into a little a little cage or... Uh, I would say Pacific Palestine, Palestine. Palestine. So yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's really, it's really scary what's happening with Papua
1: at the moment. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the push to kind of um, to kind of classify the independence movement as a terrorist movement is is really scary. You know, the the kind of uh, powers that that will you know obviously the, the government has been acting with impunity anyway, but. Mm. um you know the the kind of false you know sanction that that will give them to then crack down even harder is is really terrifying
9: yeah, and also um to relate to australia um and the Lombok the establishment of the Lombok treaty as well um they um, we know that the Lombok treaty um uh exists due to uh uh, terrorism that happens in uh, late 2006 um, during Bali bombing that murdered 88 Australians. And now, with the agenda of um, turning with Papua Liberation Movement as a terrorism, um, Australia definitely will support these motions of Indonesia. And the um, it's been happening a long time that the military training that exists in Campbell Barracks that Western Australia where Australia um, training um, Indonesian soldier and this highly skilled um, soldier, they call it the Paguto, which is a pasukan penanggulangan terrorist or the terrorist, um, anti-terrorist uh, uh, soldier. Mm. And it's one of the the, the highly skilled soldiers along um, Indonesian army, so them. And then also there's another one called Dengjaka and Kopassus. And some of them train here in the Australian soil. And also the weapons manufacturer are from here, from Australian soil. And Australia took a lot of part in this. So they're going to send all of this... Um, uh, killing machine troops to West Papua, which already, for the last two years, two days, and there'll be more um, casualties from the islands of Arabia, especially in Punjab and Luga, that I believe people already seen on the screen, um, reported by um, many different Australians in India, so um, it would be nice to have. Uh, more support from the mm. community regarding to the genocide
0: in West Papua. Mm, I think that's so important to acknowledge and for people here to become aware of, you know, the Australian government's involvement um, in supporting the Indonesian occupation of West Papua. Um, I also wanted to ask, you know, in relation to this idea of, yeah, uh, terrorism and um, like using that word to describe the liberation movement. I know that, um West Papua activists and um liberation fighters have been also fighting um in the UN and other international law forums to for the genocide in West Papua to, to be recognized. Um do you have any comments on that and just how you know the Indonesians are kind of flipping that logic rather you know resisting so hard on yeah. this geno- calling this genocide that they're actually taking back that language and you know calling um the liberation fight terrorism.
9: Yeah, um like uh, I'm talking on behalf of myself that uh I think that this the the capitalist country took a part in this to to um to perfecting the strategy to to killing to killing with powerful people so in here um Indonesia worked together with all the weapons manufacturer and again um we're talking about the uh, weapons manufacturer we're talking about the u s we're talking about uh the israel we're talking about the korea we're talking about australia who has the the mining interest in west Papua as well and not only mining interest like for mining from the from the there, you can you can build all of this uh firearms you can have the establishments of um weapon manufacturer and like with the with the research happening um uh, from from us uh make west Papua safe and uh wage we know that uh capitalist countries are looking for new market for their firearms in Southeast Asia. So, mm. so now it, it looks like um, West Papua will be the 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 lab experiment of the um, um, the highly advanced weapons in helicopter and white phosphorus and to to make this happen is to to call West Papua as a terrorist so they can uh, legalize
5: Mm-hmm. usually
9: by um the uh, military tactics whatever to to West Papua and later on um as we know um uh, lately there is a concern about the Indo-Pacific war happening between China and uh, the US and it is brought up in, in the in the in the parliament in Australia so and also um what else uh west papua uh ulmwp declare of the help of china if they want to support our liberation army so i feel like uh this the terrorism label is, is more into the capitalist interest mm-hmm. to legalize they, they, yeah, they, yeah. They
5: use the the yeah
9: the use of firearms to sell their guns and weapons in west papua i mean the way it the same agenda happens happens everywhere
5: mm-hmm.
9: in Pakistan or in the middle east or if us, if they have a reach of um, any um um oil and gas mining um resources then we should uh, legalize the war happening in there so it's easy to control the yeah. um, community who want to fight back and uh, this evil strategy has been established long time in BP have the BP Asia Pacific in West Papua and Bintuni. they have been using um, security integrated integrated uh, com, security integrated uh, community project which they use uh, local indigenous people train them and then um, uh let them use uh, weapons to fight against the local indigenous West Papua who fight against the BP. So mm. um yeah, uh, for for me this 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 terrorism um agenda in West Papua it, it's really a threat and
1: yeah it's um, so
9: it's, it's oh. for the interest.
1: Yeah, it's definitely you know it's, it's clear to see where those links are and whose uh interests are involved. Now um Thank you, Paul. Just before we just before we wrap up, could you tell listeners um, a little bit about the before the genocide event that is happening this Saturday?
9: Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, so we we found an a archive, archive from the Dutch American um, Expedition, 1926. So um, it's from a Green family that used to be working as a nurse and educator in West Papua and fled during the Indonesian um, military invasions in West Papua, and they brought all of these different archives um, that contain um, our our traditions and um, pictures of uh, houses and the the long-gone patterns and um, our traditional uh, weapons and also um, weaving, a lot of weaving photos and... Yeah, we, we're planning to do uh, exhibitions on uh, Collingwood Yard this weekend, um, Saturday and Sunday. So it at yeah. uh, um, 3 o'clock. We launch it in, in, um, in Collingwood Yard, the and there'll be food, there'll be um uh, singing, and also um, we have... With pop and art as well, so yeah, you can see. Like for me, uh, it's it's really amazing that I can see these uh, photos because uh, I never knew that this this life actually exists ever before.
1: Yeah, years ago. No, yeah. it's, it's awesome, and I really encourage people to to attend that. So thank you so much, for for joining us today.
9: Thank, thank you for having me. Thank you.
1: At no
0: worries. Thank you, Poro. And so that was Poro Bibio, West Papuan activist and community organiser, talking to us about the situation in West Papua at the moment and also about this amazing event that's coming up on Saturday, the 1st of May, from 3 till 9pm. That's a launch party. It's called Before the Genocide and it's happening at Collingwood Yards.
8: The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope. Seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in
7: 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe
1: or call the station on 94198377.
8: Every year on May Day, 3CR joins communities from around the globe to celebrate the achievements of the labour movement and to show solidarity with the struggle for workplace rights and, of course, fair working conditions for everyone. Why is it important to celebrate May Day? Well, because we celebrate and enjoy understanding the history, the present-day fight and the future battles, because we haven't won yet so tune in from 7am on Saturday the 1st of May. It's more important than ever to celebrate May Day. We'll be fighting for a long time, so come and join us. And happy May Day from 3CR. Hold that line, hold
9: that line, hold that
1: And it is just coming up to 8.20 in the morning on Thursday breakfast, 3CR 855 AM. And we are joined by Bo Spearham, who's a Kuma, Marawari, Gamalarae man, who joins us to speak about his podcast, Frontier War Stories. Hi, Bo. How's it going?
11: Good morning. How's it going?
1: Well, thank you. Um, it's really good to to chat with you. And um, congratulations on the one-year anniversary of Frontier War Stories.
11: Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Yes, definitely. Um, an achievement within
1: itself to uh hi, all sorry, we had a couple of technical difficulties there. Um, but uh, but we're on the phone with Bo Spearum. Um, Bo, are you there?
11: Yeah, I'm here. Sorry about that. I disconnected my headphones and no worries. Um,
1: so. Um, Maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about um, how the the idea for the podcast Frontier War Stories formed and some of your favorite things um, over the first year.
9: Definitely. So
11: the idea to do anything in regards to the first 140 years of of settlement uh, of the the conflict and resistance in the first uh, 140-year period uh, really came from this comic book by Gord Hill, uh, called 500 Years of Resistance." He's a native uh, brother from from Canada, uh, from I believe the West Coast, and yeah, he, he has this amazing uh, comic book that talk, talks about uh, Indigenous resistance in the Americas from 1492 till maybe the to, not, till the early to mid nineties, and it just like each page sort of, you know, page and a half sort of covers different sort of insurgencies and, and resistance from, from indigenous folks. And it was really inspiring. And <clears throat> I never knew how I was going to do it, but I always knew that I wanted to do something of this nature. At the same time, uh, 2013, I just started radio the year before, and it didn't really click to me to, to sort of do a podcast um, uh, then. And if I did, I don't think I'd be ready for it
9: uh, mm-hmm.
11: or... I don't think it'd be up to par to where it is at the moment. But, yeah, that's sort of the inspiration of the podcast. And some of the interesting things that I learned from it was <clears throat> uh, the episode with Christy Harmon, where we talked about um, Aboriginal convicts and also Indigenous mm. convicts from different parts of the British colony around the world who came here. To, you know, essentially, it was, a, it was a death sentence, you know. If they got caught participating in a frontier conflict, were put in a ship and they were brought to the penal colonies here in Australia, and in particular I think it was Tasmania, and they lived that the rest of their lives, you know, oh, yeah. uh, on these islands. Um, you know, talking with um, Associate Professor Lindley Wallace about Native Mounted Police and, you know, the the 50-year brutal history uh, of the Native Mounted Police. And if nobody knows, like, um, <clears throat> over a 50-year period, they estimated about 100,000 Aboriginal people died uh, from uh, massacres and from conflict mm. with the Native Man of Police um, historian and you know uh, frontier sort of conflicts OG. Um, Henry Reynolds characterizes uh, the Native Man of Police as one of the most brutal um, organizations in the in Australian history, um, and everywhere around the country except for WA or parts of WA, they didn't have native manor police, but had something similar where they had like an Aboriginal person who was expertise on country and and, and was a crack shot and mm. uh and could ride horses,
5: as yeah. Well. Uh,
11: that's, uh, the, the funny thing about that, there, that's the story of Mara, I believe, in his early life before he uh switched up and you know, um. Uh, started fighting for its people, <clears throat> he was sort of an offside or of a, of a police officer, uh, I believe it was.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's. I mean, there's just so much um, in this podcast. It's, it's so interesting, so important for everybody to, to sort of listen to. This is not the kind of history you get in history books. So, Bo, where can people um, listen to the podcast?
11: Definitely. So, people can initially sort of listen to it on Podbean. That's sort of the platform that... Uh, I upload it to, and that's the home. But people can listen to it on all streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, and and, and all these other uh, streaming platforms that are out there as well. Um, Yeah, and if anybody wants to sort of support the podcast financially, at Podbean, there's a link in the top right corner, I believe it is, where people can become a patron and they can uh, donate as much as they want or as little as they want uh, on a regular basis.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bo. We're going to have to have you on again to talk about this in more detail, but we really just wanted to plug the one year anniversary. So thanks so much. Awesome.
11: Well, thank you. You've had a good one.
1: All right. Take care. And uh, that was Bo Spearham, who's a Kuma Marawari Gamilara man, who joined us to speak about his podcast, Frontier War Stories. And each episode is dedicated to truth telling about a side of Australia that has been left out of the history books. Frontier War Stories now has 21 episodes and on the 28th of April came up to, wait, is that today? 29th. No, it's the 29th. Yesterday came up to its first birthday. We really encourage people to go listen to it. Um, You're going to learn a whole lot. I have a lot of catching up to do and I'm sure there's going to be excellent stuff to come. And uh, now we are coming up to the end of the show. So that's all we've got time for today. But do we want to go through a quick rundown of what we had? I think a quick rundown sounds good. So first up,
0: we heard a segment from Wednesday Breakfast.
1: Yep. So Ella from Wednesday Breakfast spoke with Lizzie O'Shea, who's an activist and human rights lawyer and the founder and board member of Digital Rights Watch uh, on why the term unskilled labor doesn't really exist. And then I
0: spoke with Bernardo Duarte, a member of the Timorese community and an organiser of the Melbourne Timorese Relief Fund about the, the floods in Timor-Leste and um, how people can support
4: we then heard from Jenny Davidson, the CEO of the Council of Single Mothers and Their Children's Victoria, who spoke about the next um, the next current Parliamentary Joint Committee on Human Rights Inquiry into the Parents' Next Programme of Welfare Conditionality, as well as the broader concerns about the program.
0: And then I spoke, oh, me and Priya spoke with Poro Bibi, a West Papua activist and community organiser, about what's going on in West Papua, but also about the amazing event before the genocide coming up this Saturday, the 1st of May.
1: Yep, that's from 3 to 9 p.m. at Collingwood Yard, so definitely check it out. And finally, I spoke with Bo Spearham about uh, the Frontier War Stories podcast. So thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, and we'll catch you next week.
9: Bye.
11: They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the
10: march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Alta and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters
11: about some angry blighters.
1: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.